Hello and welcome back to Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. And I'm especially pleased about our guest today because he belongs to a rare and I fear diminishing band of academic brothers in South Africa, still able to help us properly understand our past. Professor Keith Breckenridge is arguably South Africa's preeminent economic historian. He's with the Witz Institute for Social Economic Research in Johannesburg. But as our country, shambolically as it is, prepares to exit the beginning stages, at least of the coronavirus pandemic, and as its government attempts to use the catastrophe as a sort of economic watershed, I thought it would be a good thing to talk to somebody who can at least teach us and reach far back in time to remind us what happened the last time we stood on a precipice similar to the one we do now. So Keith, thank you so much for joining me today. Just over 100 years ago, South Africa was coming out of a terrifying joust with the Spanish flu, which killed more than 600,000 people, if I'm not mistaken, almost a tenth of our population. We'd just come out of World War II. What do we know about that time economically and what life was like for people? Thank you, Peter, and thanks, everybody, for listening to this. Um, so with World War I, um, I mean, the big thing is that there's a terrible post-war inflation crisis uh, that coincided with the, with the Spanish epidemic, the Spanish flu epidemic. Um, and, and it's one of the reasons why the epidemic isn't as well remembered as it probably should be, because it coincided in South Africa with these two enormous strikes, the 1920 African mine workers strike, which was itself preceded by a, a, an urban strike on the Bitwater's front and then the Bullhook massacre, which is the set of the centenaries today. Um, uh, then, of course, what was the bullhook mass? What was the, the uh, so to, I'm going to be careful how I describe it. it it's a it was a massacre in the Eastern Cape of a group of um, really de- you know devout religious followers who uh, this, it, 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 I, I can't give you the figures now. You've asked me, I have yeah. to go and look it up. But they, you know, lots of people were actually shot by the police and the army in, in the Eastern Cape. Oh, yeah. My God. Um, so South Africa was a rough place back then as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, you, the thing that people forget is how tumultuous things were here in the first, you know, 25 years. And a lot of it is smuts kind of keeping the country together. So you have these consistent, almost every year, uh, a, a strike that threatens the, the, the political settlement. It really has the, pro- the possibility of breaking everything. 1907, 1912, 1913, and 1914. The, the Boer Rebellion, all of these basically are the moments at which the, the whole society could have fallen completely apart. And then, of course, 1920 and 1922, which were very serious. What was inflation doing in those years? I mean, were because the, the war obviously um, uh, prevented us trading. It had caused enormous damage to farmers who were unable to sell their products overseas as easily as they had in the past. Um, uh Gold wasn't tradable because, and Germany was a, presumably a, a large uh, uh, buyer of South African gold. Uh, we weren't able to supply them. What was what did the sort of what did the sort of statistics look like um, um, in terms of inflation, in terms of money supply? We were on the gold standard, were we not during the war? Well, we were up until so the gold standard is the, is you know very. Uh, fixed and and kind of works very uh, in a kind of 
very flexible way internationally up until 1914. And that, that that's it's often described as the kind of engine behind the expansion of entrepot trade and finance in London. Because so London becomes the global center of almost all government debt um, and merchant banking. It all it all moves there. Um, and the Americans, even you know, JP Morgan is involved in in issuing US government debt in London, in large part because of the kind of the flexibility of the gold standard before 1914. So it's often remembered as this kind of big driver of prosperity. Uh, and, and people talk about the, the sort of first age of global financialization as being that period, the last quarter of the 19th century. Obviously, things change in 1914. South Africa continues to sell gold at a fixed price. So the gold coming out of the gold mines is still shipped to the Bank of England. Um, uh, but what happens is that they stop convertibility between 1914 uh, and, and, you know, really it doesn't get reestablished until 1924. And that, that means that banks can send, governments can borrow and banks can issue debts without having to worry about having to have gold to back it up. And so there's a massive explosion of government spending <clears throat> to fight the war. And that happens here as well. Um, and, and as the war comes to an end, the, you know, there's all this excess money in the system and inflation really explodes everywhere, all over the world, but especially actually in South Africa. Um, so, you know, I, I can't give you the figures off the top of my head, but, you know, the, there isn't a similar inflationary crisis until the Second World War in South Africa. Um, so workers are really, really struggling to, to buy enough food to get by in a period between 1919 and it it begins to, the inflationary crisis is pretty much over by 1923, by the end of the the period of the real conflict on the mines. And remember, because mine workers are paid, you know, at this fixed rate, there's no, and there's no expectation of annual increases or anything because they have been paid in gold before that. Let me ask you just one question about the gold standard. The gold standard implied that every one pound note you had in your hand was divisible into so many ounces of gold, I presume. So it was, and that was, that was just a fixed thing. Your pound equaled X amount of gold. Yeah, of course, nobody, you couldn't really do that. You couldn't take a pound to the, you know, South Africa had a central bank after 1920, which is very distinctive. None of the other kind of colonial settler colonies had central banks yet. Uh, but you couldn't go to Pretoria with your, one pound note after 1920 because it wasn't divisible, but people were, were paid in, so, you know, in, in, in one, in sovereigns. They were paid right. in little red coins. So there's yeah. this, if you, if I know you're from the Transkei, Peter, but <laughs> if you go and speak to people who live in Ponderland, there is this fantasy that, you know, my great grandfather had this collection of gold sovereigns and they're hidden somewhere in the hills here. None of us know where they are. They all, all yeah. migrant workers speak about that, that there's, you know, gold hidden in, in the ground. Because they did bring gold coins home, and we know they, on average, that they would bring ten or twelve pounds in gold home with them. Um, that, you okay. know, this is especially after the 1924, the restoration. But, of the gold, but gold Keith, what caused the inflation? What drove the inflation? Well, with government spending mainly, yeah. you know, that's clear. So that the state begins to, because it's fighting a war, and it, it massively expands all the bureaucracies, and especially actually in Britain. So government debt in Britain. Ex- increased from about 650 million pounds in 1914, virtually no debt. They they had huge debts at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, really enormous debts. 
that they pay down remorselessly until 1914, where they have virtually no debt. And then they borrow like crazy, obviously, to fight the war. And it goes up from 600 million to 6 billion pounds. And there's a panic uh, that is associated with that, very similar to what we're seeing at the moment, the real fear that the debt is unsus- was unsustainable. Except that they, except that I presume that South Africa was shipping gold to the UK and that there would have been that sort of backup. Um, yeah, but, us, but we, were still, we still had a very heavy, at least the, 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 there was a lot of concern that the expenditures had expanded very heavily in South okay. Africa as well. Um, so in both countries, there's this famous commission in 1922 called the Gettys Axe Commission. We called ours the Gettys Axe reforms, even though Geddes was, in, was a British politician, which went after huge, you know, all the, all the big parts of the, of, the, of, the, of the spending. So that was things like, you know, what was spent on defense. In South Africa, the thing that got gutted was the Native Affairs Department in particular. Yeah. With, I think really long-term damaging consequences for everybody. So when you come out of it, uh, out of a out of the Spanish flu, which must have also been, you know, an, a complete nightmare to manage, um, uh, coming out of the war, you have economic choices to make, just like we have now. Um, what are they? What are the key ones that they made? Round about, let's say, we know that there was an election then where, where, that Smuts lost in 1924, but prior to that. What is what was was there anything beginning to happen? Where was the where did the what we see as the sort of skeleton of the South African industrial state begin? Was it beginning to show itself then? Yeah, well, it does, but it but um, yeah, that's an interesting question. So there there is an argument that the First World War, the economic isolation of the First World War, is the real kind of driver of the. Of the, of the first stages of industrialization in South Africa. Um, but, the, but the commissions that lead to the establishment of ISCO in particular really only come after 1924. Uh, and that is one of the big contributions that the, the Herzogian national economic nationalists basically produce. Um, there's, a, there's some debate about uh, you know, who should be given responsibility for this because Van der Bale and people like even Van Eck were very close to Smuts. And there's, yeah. so Bill Freund, uh, it's clear both parties were, I mean, I think this is, this is something we really need to, it needs to be made much, much clearer than is the case. The nationalists and, and the Smuts, the, the unionists, uh, the SAP were really were, they, they all viewed the mining industry with suspicion and Smuts's reasons for viewing the mines with suspicion really related to the, the late 1890s and his sense of the betrayal of the, the promises that had been made to him, where, you know, the mines basically turned their back on him and sided with Milner and against the Boer Republics. And he, he, he changed the way that the, the tax law worked. So almost all new mines basically were state owned in South Africa after 1907, when Smuts basically gets control of the Transvaal state again. Yeah. And he was one of the figures, you know, pushing this cross subsidizing of, it was mainly initially spent on agriculture. We shouldn't underestimate that. Yeah. Um, but it was a real interest in, in basically taking the money that was coming from, from gold mining and pushing it into the wider economy. Um, and that just, so Smuts and Herzog basically both supported that idea that railways in particular would be the big beneficiary of cross-subsidization from the mining industry. And, and railways was connected to ISCOR and, 
and eventually to Eskom as well. I remember my father was a building contractor in Mtata. Uh, and during the 50s and 60s, you, you couldn't even carry a bag of nails home to Mtata from East London in your car. It had to go on the train. Um, uh, it's quite extraordinary. So you get to 1924 and, and the government changes. Smuts loses the election. Herzog wins it. Um, and he, if anything, Herzog, even though he would be sort of nominally to the sort of right of Smuts, he is much more socially, um, social policy active. He creates um, opportunities for Afrikaners. For look, we're talking about white people here. I mean, if you're black in South Africa, then you, your life is as you know, it's just complete misery. Um, but he creates. Um, Working condition legislation to um, um, to help Afrikaners. He creates a uh, almost like a welfare net. Um, uh, what is ha- you know what is happening in South Africa in 1924? Because what's happening in the rest of the world is what we know as the Roaring Twenties. People are you know people are out dancing the night away in New York and Los Angeles and, and Paris and London. Everybody's having a good time. Are we still struggling? Well, it's not the rest of the world. That's a very American view of what was happening. So remember, yeah. 1926 is the big general strike in Britain where, you know, they, just, they literally come very close to kind of Soviet Republic, yeah. uh, which is both of those things are related to this getting these austerity reforms that were introduced in 1922. So the state pulls, tries to pull back from from the welfare order, from spending money on schooling. Um, and, and that happens here too, but the burden of it is falls mainly on, on black people. I mean, I think it's really important to, to not have this view that there was just this ap- apocalypse that was everything that happened before 1994. In many ways, for black workers, the period from 1890 to, I would say, 1931, it's actually quite a good time. They paid well, they can buy cattle, that those reserves of cattle that people always talk about in Ponderland, those things are restored yeah, in the 1920s by the value of the money that, that mine workers are earning. So, so uh, but the rest of the economy is quite is is basically deflationary, and there's really a lot of there's a lot of trouble on the on the farms where farm workers um, are, are resisting. Um, the reduction in wages that, mine, that the farm owners were trying to impose on them, and you see that on the maize farms, you see it, you know, on the, on the timber farms in the in in KwaZulu Natal, and the, and the political crisis is associated with the development of something called the Industrial and Commercial Workers Union, which be, grows very rapidly in in this period, 1926 and 1927, uh, and that leads in South Africa to um, the 1927 what's called the native administration act which is when uh it's it's, you know they're black voters in south africa the people voting for for parliament and the native administration act says no one can gather no african in in the reserves uh, can gather in groups of more than four three or four or five i can't remember the exact number without the permission of the magistrate so there's a real attempt to kind of close down The protests that were associated with this this industrial and commercial workers union. Um, so you know, South Africa in the twenties is really not like the. It's not the Roaring Twenties at all. Um, it's a. It's 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 driven. I think really in the wrong direction towards trying to 
um, established what people would have called at the time the real value of money. There's a real push to kind of reduce government spending and to bring the country back onto the gold standard in 1924. And the only way you can do that really is to take very hard cuts into the amount of the, 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 the state was was borrowing. That's that's also the problem that the British face, and it's what Keynes famously, that's the, you know, he in 1924 calls the gold standard a, barber, a barbarous relic because of this constraint on the on the state's uh, ability to borrow and spend and, in Britain. And we 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 went back onto the standard. We did, and we, and the British did. In, in we followed the British in 1924 back onto right. the gold standard. And that must have. How, I mean, you made an interesting uh, comment a moment ago when you talked about how mine workers were relatively uh, w- well paid. They were bringing home um, solid money and owned their own cattle. Um, how long did that last for? I mean, what was what was enabling that? Why were they able to do that? Well, it's deflationary. So the the value of money, you know, the value of gold is is worth more and more every year in terms okay. of the other commodities that yeah. you buy, which is great if you're earning in gold. But very few people, you know, the mine workers were, and the states, are, the, but the but the companies really also struggled. So in this period, it's a it was a good time to be earning gold if you're a worker. And then obviously, what happens in 1931 is that the the, the value of gold is. It, the, 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 we move back off the gold standard, and the mines are selling gold, but it but it's now worth much more uh, offshore than it is worth locally, um, and it, essentially that begins to undermine the value of those of those workers' wages. So the the real shift comes in 1931, uh, where the workers are paid in what we would call rands, what are the, the time South African pounds, and the mines are selling gold in London. Uh, in, and selling it in dollars and earning much more than they were before. So that's the beginning of this very distinctive South African problem of, you know, we becoming we become addicted to the devaluation of the local currency as a way to reduce the the, the running costs of the companies. That, that that turns out not to necessarily be a unique um, uh, no, answer no. to to your problems. I mean, people people play. You know, people devalue the British were to go. You know, they did that in the sixties, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely, forty nine um, and and again in yeah. sixty three. Um, uh, to devalue the currency to make your exports, you know, um, cheaper. Um, but I wonder to what whether it's fair to draw any parallels or useful to draw any parallels between then and say now, because we we are we, we're coming out of this pandemic. Um, the economy is in a mess. There's a lot of people unemployed. There's not much inflationary pressure, but it's beginning to build. You can see it in food prices and 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 things. Um, uh, you have a government that wants to reindustrialize. I mean, if so, the government you know sort of imagines a fairly flat industrial world at the moment. Um, it's content to kind of almost cut itself off from certain products, uh, trade in certain products. Um, are there any lessons we know about the posture you need to adopt now from a hundred years ago? Yeah, I think there are lessons, but they they're not easy to summarize very quickly. I mean, I think the key issue um, was this in in South Africa was this division of the economy into essentially what we would call a kind of customary economy, which was based in the in the reserves um, in the tribal reserves. And then that kind of 
industrial capitalist or financialized economy. Um, and I think that still looks as a very serious problem in the current, in our current policymaking, that the state is still trying to make the economy work with half the population living in the countryside without title deeds, firms without credit histories, without access to formal credit in any real way. And I, and I, that I date to the Gettys Axe Commission when Smuts basically began to withdraw the administrative institutions that had been built before. Um, but, but, you know, the other thing that's clearly a big concern in South Africa is this idea that um, we have a very strange obsession with hard money. Um, and there's this idea that, you know, we need high interest rates because somehow it's important for the, for money to be something, you know, that detracts investment from outside of the country. And I think we paid a really heavy price for that over the course of the of the whole century. Um, do you think that uh, do you think that we we overvalue our currency is overvalued? I don't know if that's the problem. I think that the it's more that there's a kind of breakdown. Um, I don't think the value the currency is overvalued, but I do think the idea that you can use the interest rates uh, in some way to defend the to, to, to you know to pre preempt the development of inflation is is really the problem. I don't yeah. think you know that we've. It's fascinating to go back and look at this for in a much later period after the, the in 1973, and you look at the young Stolz trying talking to these Ameri Americans and trying to come up with, you know, a metric. What can we do? How do we measure the, the the development of inflation in South Africa? So we've had this. I don't know if you remember the 80s, Peter, but we okay. have had really high interest rate regimes coincide yeah. with really high inflation, um, and the, the 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 problem really the, the issue here. It, it, I think in South Africa is how do we get the economy to work? Or how do we and 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 how to democratize that? Um, it, you know, it, I I think the issue it it's there are very few other democracies would put up the, with the levels of, of unemployment that we have. You know, and, you, and, I, I mean, I'm inter I'm intrigued by your 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 mention of d democratizing the economy because that's exactly what Ibrahim Patel is trying to do. If you asked him. That was he wants workers on the boards. He wants workers to earn more equity in the companies that they work for, um, all of which makes perfect sense. It's the, it's the German model. Um, even the the DA probably doesn't realise it actually adopted that policy last October uh, when <laughs> it adopted the social the social market economy, um, and uh, you know. Um, the German model has worked extremely well. Germany is still one of the top three most productive industrial economies in the world because there's this broad consensus among its players about how to proceed. We don't have that. Well, that's right. And I'm, but we also have a kind of, you know, we blind, we, we choose not to ask ourselves questions about what it is that's fundamentally wrong with the way in which the economy works. And those things all date from this, the segregationist era in which the state said it was a kind of political agreement almost with said to African workers, you're going to be, tr you're going to be, you're going to have some security in the countryside. You know, you'll have access to land that, that chiefs and headmen will allocate to you. Um, and that will all be essentially informal. It'll, no one will know anything really about how that works. And it'll be in some ways protected from the kinds of costs that are associated with contemporary capitalism, capitalism in the 20th century. So we go back to that question you were asking about what the Roaring Twenties were like in the, in the United States. The Roaring Twenties in the United States were credit-fueled. 
So this is the big, the real explosion of popular short-term high interest credit. So that when you bought, a, it wasn't true for Ford, but it was only true for Ford after 1931. But for the other motor companies, if you wanted to buy a car, you got a three-year 30% interest um, loan, and that was that was what drove the industrialization. And that pushed consumption out a massive proportion of the of the uh, uh, American population, and it drove employment for all of those for people providing those things. Uh, the South African, you know, the real problem in South Africa is we think we can keep these, the, the, the industries that were built around uh, the bottleneck, if you like, of the mining industry, which were great industries, but they will not, as gold dies, they're not going to sustain the whole the wider economy. The wider economy really has to be, I mean, the simple thing is that we have to formalize, we have to actually make visible and and. Uh, part of included in in the working of the a whole economy, all those people who who now live in you know the three million RDP houses, which people don't have title for, and we built the RDP houses on the fringes of the city, almost as a kind of mirror of the original sort of segregationist argument. So, yeah. you know, it's, the real question here is is finding ways of including all South Africans in the formal economy, and stop trying to pretend that you can keep taking resources from. You know what are every year less and less profitable. Uh, Yet it's interesting you say that because there's not a single political yeah. party advocating that. You know the ANC, if, if anything, has deepened um, uh, that informality in rural areas, has deepened Absolutely. the power of the chiefs, um, and hasn't allowed people there to begin to own uh, what they live on and and to produce what they like. It's um. This, I wanted just to ask you one other thing, uh, Keith, before we get to the end. The, the, the Great Depression at the end of the 20s and the New Deal um, uh, in, in, in the U.S., how do, they, how do they, what lessons can we draw from, from those? I mean, um, you know, the U.S., as you say, was kind of had the roaring 20s all on its own, and that's where the, the Great Depression seems to have begun. But are there lessons that we can learn from that here? Well, I mean, the, 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 there's two standard arguments from the depression that really matter for South Africa. And so, uh, again, it's the gold standard. So both, you know, this is Milton Friedman's real, is a kind of awakening as an economist and as a political figure, is arguing that the, the banks did a terrible job of making credit available in the, in the context of, the, of these initial crises that began in 1929. Uh, so hard money is really dangerous, theoretically. And most central bankers know this. Ours certainly knows that they've got to keep the, the gushing flows of credit working in the, in the economy. Otherwise, you face very serious consequences up and down, all the way from the top to the bottom of the economy. Um, the other thing is that I think most economic historians would say is that you know, the New Deal was politically important, but it never really worked until right at the end of the of the 1930s. That's when the unemployment problems finally started being addressed. And the problem with this argument, of course, is that required a war. Uh, it required a war in which the Americans really were not involved until much later than everybody else. So they could ramp up both. They were basically lending to the British who were then buying all these products that they could produce, and that sucked huge numbers of workers into, and really solved the the depression employment crisis. Um, that isn't going to happen again. You know, there's just there isn't there. There's a 
there's a kind of fantasy that if we have a, a state-led employment project on the on the grounds of the of the you know like the New Deal, we can we can put work back together in South Africa. Um, and it's what that ignores is how much demand you need from outside of your economy to kind of pull it out of the. And they had much lower levels of unemployment than than we do. You know, they were only looking at sort of twenty percent of unemployed yeah. people. No, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a terrible conundrum. Look, I really want to thank you for your time, Keith. Um, we're going to have to end it there. Um, uh, I really hope I can call on you again and call on on your knowledge. I really uh, have enjoyed talking to you, and there's a lot to talk about. The note that that you've you've ended on about how we how you create this demand, or where you find the demand for what it is that we might be able. Um, to make. I think we've got a very, very long way to go. But thank you so much uh, for joining me. Take care. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, everybody. And thank you, the audience, for joining me too. These podcasts are still an adventure for me, and I really appreciate your company. I work hard to make sure we have an equally interesting guest with us in the same place, same time, next week. 